Radatosker Press presents Tales of the Chai Makani Trio by Kate McLeod, performed by Oliver Vincent. Episode 6 Secrets and Lies. The rebels moved swiftly through the jungle, charting a path through fallen trees and sinkholes that spoke of deep familiarity with the terrain. The camouflage they wore meant they were each covered in leafy branches. But despite their speed and the occasional leap over a rotting log, the only sound they made was little more than a whisper of wind through the undergrowth. Kiani and Jax, and the rest of the kids from the prison village, were just as adept at moving swiftly and silently, if less familiar with the specific terrain here, and Alextra's ethereal grace was only slightly diminished by the injuries she was still recovering from. Compared to that, Elliot felt like he was crashing through the undergrowth with all the quiet subtlety of one of the Commonwealth Enforcer tanks. He was wearing the same cloth boots as the Jax's crew, but somehow his footsteps still slapped loudly as he stumbled more than ran through the trees. The rebels were leading them on a path more or less parallel to the cliffside, although they were keeping under the cover of the trees. Elliot could hear the sound of Commonwealth shuttles, but they weren't close by. Then the rumble of the tanks, that had been at such a constant, low pitch, he had stopped really hearing it, suddenly roared back to full life. The rebel in front of Elliot stopped and looked back. It was Colrin, but he wasn't looking back at Elliot. Elliot looked back over his own shoulder, but saw nothing behind him through the overlapping trees. Colrin? One of the other rebels asked. Get them to the cliffside, Colrin said. But the shuttles... Aren't as close as those tanks, Corrin said. Get these kids moving faster. The rebel nodded and started whispering into some sort of wrist communicator. Corrin turned his attention to Elliot. Double time, boy. We're nearly there. Elliot nodded and scrambled around a massive tree trunk and over a tangle of fallen limbs, no longer concerned with the amount of noise he was making. No one pursuing them was going to hear anything over the sounds of their own tanks now, anyway. The trees grew sparser, the ground more grassy, as they approached the cliffside. A hot, dry wind blew into his face, carrying with it a very different aroma from the thick vegetation smell he had been breathing constantly since leaving the city that had been his only home since birth. Elliot climbed around another half-fallen tree and emerged in an open clearing where another blast of hot air hit him. It blew through his hair, drying the sweat from his brow in an instant, but the wind was full of particles of sand that abraded the skin on his face and coated the back of his already parched throat. He closed his eyes and turned his face away until the wind died back down, but when he started to move forward again, a hand gripped his shoulder, restraining him. He blinked the sand from his eyes until he could see the rebels standing still as statues, wrapping their arms around his companions as if to lend them some cover of their own camouflage. Then Elliot heard the erratic rattling of the rebel shuttle engines as they came from behind him, passing overhead and nosing down hard to plunge along the cliffside. Six Commonwealth shuttles followed, their own finely tuned engines almost silent in comparison. Three dove after the two rebel shuttles, the others splitting apart in a three-pronged formation out over the desert. They were still in view when Colrin wove a hand in the air, and everyone started moving again. But those shuttles can still see us, Elliot said, fighting the urge to cling to the trunk of the last tree. Our shuttles aren't going to be able to give us a better opportunity, Colrin said. This base is burnt for us for sure now, 
but we have to get inside before we can evacuate. Inside where? Elliot asked. Then he saw one of the rebels leap over the side of the cliff, branches of his camouflage fluttering in the air before he plunged out of view, and then Alextra jumped after him. It's all right, Colrin told him, and Elliot realized his mouth was hanging open in horror and disbelief. He shut his mouth, biting down on his lip for good measure. Kiani was at the edge now, but she stopped to look back and wave at him before stepping over the edge to plunge down into... what? Our turn, Colrin said, and Elliot followed him over the sun-baked grass of the clearing to the cliff's edge. The wind picked up again, and he lifted his arm to protect his eyes from the blowing sand. When he lowered his arm, he found himself standing on a bare outcropping of rock. The desert spread out on all sides below him, far below him. A wave of vertigo rocked him, but then he heard Kiani calling his name. It's just like the mountain, she said to him. He wanted to argue that point. The mountain had been steep, sure, but this clip seemed to curve in on itself. It wasn't the same at all. Elliot, just look at me, Kiani said. He realized he had shut his eyes against the glare of the noonday sun reflecting up off the sand. He opened them and looked around until he finally saw Kiani waving up at him. She was below him, standing on a ledge that was barely wider than her shoulders. Just jump down to me. It looks worse than it is. Colrin said from behind him. That ledge is angled towards the cliff wall. If you do stumble, you'll fall towards safety. But I don't think you'll stumble. Elliot, the shuttles are coming back, Kiani said. Uh, back up a bit, Elliot said to her. I don't want to fall into you and take us both over the edge. He expected her to argue, but she just nodded and took several steps back, without looking behind her, which made his stomach flutter in alarm. He took a deep breath, made sure he wasn't about to bite down in his own lip or anything, if he landed hard, and then stepped over the edge. The rock he landed on was like a concave dish, as if smoothed by countless feet, making the same landing. The ledge was narrow, but unlike the outcropping above, he no longer felt like he was being thrust out into nothingness. The sand was just far below, but easier to put out of his mind. Kiani was waving him to follow, and he realized Colrin was still standing above. He kept one hand on the surprisingly cold stone under the shadow of the clifftop and walked along the ledge. This he could do. It was just like walking along the tops of walls and over rooftops back in the city. The sands below were no more than a pressing concern than the views of the jungle below from his mountaintop home. The ledge ran more or less level, although it made three blind hairpin turns around outcroppings of rock. He could usually see Kiani in front of him, but the others were too far ahead. Then he slipped around one last stony protrusion, and the ledge became sort of a natural staircase up to a long, low cave. He had to duck to get inside, but thankfully once inside the cool darkness, there was room enough to stand. Kiani? He called. After the blinding whiteness of the desert, the sudden darkness was disorienting. Worse, the walls were too far away for him to reach. He shuffled forward once again, wishing he had his own boots back, with their reinforced toes. This way, Kiani said, and he felt her hand brush against his. There's another couple of turns, but then you'll see the light. At first it was only like the blackness became more of a grayness, one where any details of the world around him were still obscure. 
Then he could see Kiani's silhouette in front of him. That silhouette gained definition as they continued walking, but even rising up on the tiptoes to look overhead, he saw nothing like a light source. Kiani, anyone still ahead of you? Colin asked from behind Elliot. Not that I see, she said. The cave takes a turn. Are we going back out? No, stop here, Colin said. Elliot could see nothing different about where they were standing. Kiani also gave up, looking around with a careless shrug. The fact that Colrin as well looked stumped about what to do next was not particularly comforting. Okay, it's here, he said, running his hands over the stone wall of the cave. Somewhere around here, he amended, fingers still probing the wall. You don't know how to get in? Kiani asked. I don't usually leave the bridge, he said. You came out for Elliot? Kiani guessed. No, Colrin said. I had no idea Elliot was out there. It was the tanks. Tanks in the jungle, and not on one of the Commonwealth transport roads. Very unusual. Ah, here we go. He stepped back from the wall. At first nothing seemed to be happening, but then Elliot realized he could see the satisfied grin on Colrin's face more clearly than before. Where was that light coming from? Then Colrin took a step into the stone wall. Into, and then through it. Come on! Kiani said, catching at Elliot's sleeve before following Colrin to pass ghost-like through the wall. Elliot plunged after. The uneven stone floor became smooth and level, and he could finally see where the light was coming from. The cave was now a squared-off tunnel, still entirely of stone, but no longer naturally formed. Lights were set into the ceiling so that the circles of illumination they cast down onto the floor just overlapped at the edges. This way, Colrin said, and led the way at a pace that was more jog than walk. Elliot looked back down the endless tunnel behind him, but all he could see was light after light until the tunnel was no more than a point in the distance. Where did it go? Elliot, come on! Kiani hissed back at him. If the tunnel ran endlessly on in a straight line like it appeared to, there was little chance he would lose his way. And yet, having just walked through a solid wall of stone, there could be all sorts of cross passages he wasn't seeing. He ran until he caught up, just in time to see Colrin once more step through a wall and disappear. But the tunnel had better light than the cave, and he could see more details here. The wall itself still looked like ordinary rock, even now that he knew it wasn't. But at the moment Colrin had passed through it, the entire thing had shimmered. It wasn't like a flicker of light, more like a pool of water disturbed by a tiny pebble, sending ripples out but quickly settling back to stillness. Have you ever seen anything like this? Kiani asked, reaching out a hand to touch the wall. Her fingertips just brushed the surface, sending out more ripples. Never, Elliot said. We have holograms, or they do in the richer parts of the city. But they're nothing like this. Not that I've seen, anyway. He finished lamely. He had spent his entire life within the high mountain walls of the largest city on the planet, but until this moment, it had never occurred to him that he hadn't seen much more of anything than Kiani had, and she had been raised by prisoners in a labor camp. I bet Lextra has, Kiani said, but there was no bitterness to her tone. No. He was full of wonder as if the mere thought of what Elektra had seen in her lifetime delighted her. 
let's go, Elliot said. He didn't want to lose Colrin, but he didn't want to go first either. He wanted another chance at seeing what exactly happened when someone walked through the wall. Kiani nodded, then plunged through. But even when he was watching closely, it was all over too quickly for him to see it all. He supposed that made sense. If the effects lasted more than a second, it would be useless as camouflage. Elliot stepped through to find himself in what looked like a storage room. There were shelving racks all around him, loaded with sealed containers of various sizes. The light was only a little brighter than in the tunnel behind him, and he was coming from the far end of the room. He stepped out from between the shelves to see that the light was streaming in from an open door. He turned to look at the wall behind him. It still appeared to be stone. He leaned into the space between the two shelves to touch a spot on the wall as far as he could reach from the camouflage doorway. It felt like stone, cold and slightly damp. But the other three walls were a dull gray metal, broken up into sections about an arm's reach in size. He could see where the sections were clamped together. He walked away from the stone wall, past the rows of shells, to the far wall to get a better look. Yes, he could see it now. Each arm's wide section had two anchors that fit into the stone floor. He gave the wall a testing push, but it was solid. Elliot! Kiani called from the doorway. He could barely see more than an outline of her head. The lights in the corridor behind her were too bright compared to the dim storage room he was standing in. This whole thing comes apart? He asked her as he headed towards the doorway. The prison camp structures do too, Kiani told him. This looks more like solid material, though. I wonder where they got it. Stolen, Colrin said from where he was standing, arms crossed in the middle of the corridor, waiting for them to catch up. From the Commonwealth. Then he turned his heel and resumed his fast walk. How big is this place? Elliot asked as he fell into step beside him. It's our second largest post, Colrin said. Nearly 200 fighters are stationed here. And the Commonwealth is never suspected? Elliot asked. We've been careful, Colrin said. But it's over now. We're already preparing to move operations. Move operations? Kiani asked. You mean take this all apart and load it up on trucks? Shuttles, mainly, Colrin said. And I don't think we'll be able to take all of it. Time isn't on our side. They were still walking down the same corridor. But they had passed many cross corridors. They were moving too quickly to get more than a glimpse down any of them. But Elliot saw people bustling about, dodging around hover loaders filled to nearly the tipping point with containers of supplies, stacks of weapons, and pieces of equipment. We came at a bad time? Elliot asked hopefully. Colrin didn't answer, but the look he shot Elliot said enough. The rebels were packing up and leaving because Elliot and his friends had inadvertently led trouble right to their door. My mother, Elliot started to say, but Colrin raised his hand to interrupt him. They had reached the end of the corridor and were now in the back of the long room. There was enough room for a row of workstations, then a few steps down to another row, and then another. Every workstation faced the open space where the opposite wall of the room should be, and that open space looked down over a massive hangar space filled with shuttles, fighter ships, surveillance drones, and other kinds of craft he could only guess the purposes of. The moment they had stepped inside, four people had jumped up from their workstations to rush towards Colrin. 
Corrin pulled the first aside to have a whispered conversation out of the doorway, and then the other three fell in behind to wait their turn. Look, there's Electra, Kiani said, pointing to the far end of the room. Jax and the others were at the very edge, leaning over a railing to peer down into the hangar below. But Electra was back a bit, talking to one of the rebel women. Then she saw the two of them and raised a hand in greeting. She said something else to the woman, then strode up the stairs until she reached Kiani and Elliot. What's going on? Elliot asked. It's as we feared, Alextra said. We brought trouble with us, and now this spaceport has to be abandoned. Uh, but how was this our fault? Kiani asked. Those Commonwealth shuttles were already chasing the rebels all over the sky. That has nothing to do with us. That's not the problem, Alextra said. The rebels have put a sub-program in the Commonwealth shuttle systems. The rebel shuttles disappear from their scopes and the spaceport is not detectable by them at all. How is that possible? Elliot asked. It was done from the flagship, Electra said with a shrug. A spy installed this sub-program there, and all the shuttles in this system get their updates from there. No one has found it in the routine checks. At least not yet. The rebels here were safe, so long as they were careful. Their pilots made a convincing show of losing their tails through skillful flying, even though they would have been visible if the Commonwealth scopes weren't actively hiding them. So they could be seen by someone just looking out a window? And no one has done that in how long? Elliot asked. Yes, they could be seen by someone in a shuttle looking out of an unenhanced window, one not connected to the scopes. But all functional windows, such as for pilots or gunners, are enhanced. They're meant to aid in seeing targets, but that makes them vulnerable to this sort of spoofing. Okay, Elliot said, letting a thousand follow-up questions go for the moment. But what's this got to do with us? The tanks? Kiani guessed. Exactly, Alextra said. Someone in a tank saw something. The tanks also have enhanced windows, of course, but the sub-program doesn't affect tank systems. They saw the shuttles, then? They weren't close enough to see the hideout, Elliot said. Maybe they didn't see anything, Alextra said with a shrug. But they might have, and the rebels can't take that chance. And once they revealed themselves to rescue us, it really was all over. The Commonwealth will scour this entire area, so they're moving this whole post to another location. And in a hurry. How is that going to be hidden? It's not, Corrin said suddenly standing over the three of them, with no one else clamoring for his attention. We'll be leaving here in full view, conducting a series of demolition raids and nuisance missions, and hopefully keeping the Commonwealth so busy, a few key transport shuttles can sneak away. The shuttles are incoming, sir, someone called. Thank you, Dex, Colrin said over his shoulder. Elliot caught hold of Colrin's sleeve before he could turn away. My mother... Your mother is on the Commonwealth flagship, Colrin said, then put his hand over Elliot's own. She was a spy, but she was caught. Killed? Elliot choked out. No, at least not yet, Colrin said. There are conflicting reports about what happened and when. She may have been disciplined for some completely unrelated offense and put in the brig for a short time. Or she might have been caught spying and is being detained for that. That carries a death sentence, Alextra said. After a short investigation and an even shorter trial. We're aware, Corrin said.
But now that his attention was focused on Alextra, the matter of Elliot's mother seemed to fade from his mind. He just tapped a fingertip on his lips repeatedly, lost in thought. Thought that was interrupted by Jax, marching up to them, taking the steps two at a time. Don't listen to anything these three tell you, he said. Jax, wasn't it? Conran asked with a frown. That's right, Jax said. Do you have an explanation for your behavior? Conran asked. I brought back recruits, Jax said, gesturing at the other prison camp kids clustered behind him. You weren't asked to go fetch recruits, Conran said. You were asked to stay put until we could move you to one of the other posts, where we could use you. We don't break in newbies here this close to the capital. You were told. I waited, Jax said sullenly. I waited as long as I could, but nothing was happening, and no one was telling me anything. You were told to wait, Torrin said, repeatedly. I don't want to wait. I want to fight, Jax said. We have no use for a soldier who won't follow orders, Torrin said, then looked past Jax to his friends. And if this lot follows your lead, it's probably best if you all slip away like you did last time. Jax's face flushed red, but he avoided meeting the inquisitive gaze of any of his companions. His jaw kept clenching and unclenching as he churned through possible responses without coming up with anything. It was only when Colrin started to turn his attention away from the group of them and back to Alextra that he finally found the words, You can't trust her, he said, stabbing his finger at Alextra. That enforcer captain had her in his grasp, and he let her go. She's clearly one of them. Captain Colton Ward was following protocol, Alextra said, as if answering a query from Colrin and not an accusation from Jax. He intended to detain me through non-lethal means, and was exhibiting an abundance of caution to avoid doing me even a minor injury. But I assure you, he was not letting me go. No, I could see that, Colrin said. You were using that to buy time for the rest of your companions to escape. Attempting to, Alextra said. Of course, I was still hoping to evade capture myself. I want to ask you why, Colrin said. But I would want a complete answer, and now isn't the time. Alextra gave him a tight nod. Is there anything I can do to help? She asked. Colrin raised a single eyebrow. Are you siding with us? Openly. That might not be wise, Alextra said or, indeed, helpful to you. But I have skills that could be of use to you more covertly. What are you two talking about? Elliot asked. Nuisance missions, Alextra said, still looking only at Colrin, like you said before. Interesting, Colrin said, and started to lapse back into lip-tapping, thought, but instead gave himself a little shake. I have to see to some other things here first. And I'm already late for a meeting with the other rebel leaders. We'll talk again in a few hours. In the meantime, I'm going to have Dex take you to the pilot-ready room. If you need to eat or sleep or shower and get a change of clothes, Dex will take care of you. Take advantage of it while we can still offer it. This spaceport will be little more than a windy cave by nightfall. But my mother... Elliot started to say, 
is exactly what we'll be discussing when I see you next, Corrin said, walking backwards away from them. Your mother and nuisance missions, he said, pointing first at Elliot and then at Alextra. Then he turned and left the room through a smaller door off to the side of the top deck. This way, Dex said, waiting for them to follow him back the way they'd come. The pilot-ready room was one doorway back down the corridor. One side of the room was rows of chairs, facing a holographic display currently showing all the Commonwealth ships hovering over the city. The other side of the room was more casual, with tables and chairs and a kitchenette along one wall. Showers are through here on the left, Dex told them, pointing down a short hallway opposite the door on the other side of the room. And the bunks are on the right. You can crash on any of them. They aren't assigned. Eat anything you find in the cabinets. It saves us on packing it up and moving it. Does, uh, anyone want a change of clothes? Yes, please, Elliot said. Anything is better than what I'm wearing. Do you have proper boots? Like mine? Dex asked, turning a foot back and forth so that Elliot could admire his brightly polished ankle-high boot. There would be no slipping with the treads on those heavy soles, and no thorn could ever pierce that thick leather. They were nicer than anything he had ever owned. Perfect, Elliot said. I'll find a couple sizes so you can see which fit best, Dex said. How about the rest of you? We're good, Jax said. The others just nodded, a few shooting Elliot dirty looks, apparently for slandering his borrowed wardrobe, which was identical to theirs. Come with me, then, Dex said, and Elliot followed him down the short hallway and to the right. This room was a barracks, with about a dozen bunks surrounded by rows of lockers. Dex started opening locker doors at random, tossing out anything that looked like it might fit Elliot. When they were done, Elliot was wearing black pants of a thick but stretchy fabric that didn't bind up or get tight when he moved. The pants had several large pockets on the outside, and even tiny pockets hidden on the inside, perhaps for sneaking computer disks with infiltrating subprograms onto Commonwealth flagships. His shirt fit close to his body, but like the pants, didn't get tight when he moved, and the olive green vest he wore over it gave him still more pockets. He dispersed his few possessions among the pockets, tucking the needle gun into a side pocket on his pants that was designed for just such a purpose. And the boots were, indeed, perfection. When he finally came back out into the ready room, he found Keani and Alextra sitting apart from the others, heads close together as they talked. Everything all right? Elliot asked as he pulled up a chair to sit with them. Just waiting for Colrin to make his appearance, Alextra said. Dex said it might be a while. He's in a remote conference with the leaders at the other rebel posts. Are you hungry? Kiani asked, pushing various foil-wrapped packages across the table towards him. Uh, that meat and gravy thing is pretty good. I had three myself. I'll try that, Elliot said. The label on the package was a pictogram that didn't exactly give him a clear idea as to the contents, just a line drawing of a bowl emitting steam. But Keani gave him a little nod when he touched one, and when he pulled open the tab, the contents instantly self-heated to a steaming warmth. It's a shame we led the tanks here, Keani said with a sigh. Imagine if we got here unseen. We could have joined them and just lived here, all hidden away. We'd have to join the rebellion to stay here, right? Sign on to be soldiers? Elliot asked around a mouthful of actually quite good chipped meat and brown sauce. 
Soldiers or spies or something that makes a contribution, Kiani said. But that's true everywhere. Wherever we go, we're going to have to find something to do if we want food or shelter. There are worse jobs, Elliot agreed. But we can still join, right? I mean, they're moving this post, but there are others. And this one will just be in a different place. They'll still need new recruits. Is that what you want to do? Elextra asked. He suspected she was using a lot of care to keep her voice inflectionless. I guess so, Elliot said. I mean, my mother is one of them. It feels like I belong here. But you weren't here, Elextra said. Maybe that was deliberate on your mother's part. I was just a kid when she disappeared, Elliot said. I'm not a kid anymore. Fair enough, Elextra said. What about you, Kiani? Me? Kiani said. I never made any plans at all. I mean, escaping from the prison camp wasn't even really a plan. It just sort of happened. After Jackson and his friends started all the trouble, it seemed wisest to stay out of sight until it all cooled back down. But you came to the city, Elextra said. I was curious, Kiani admitted. And now? I don't know, Kiani said. I'm not going to be in a hurry to turn my back on food and shelter, unless what's asked in return is really bad, I'll tell you that. I get that, Elextra said. But what about you? Elliot asked her. What do you intend to do next? She was about to answer when two people came into the room, both in flight suits. The man headed straight for the kitchenette and started digging through cupboards, but the woman's eyes scanned over the room until she saw Elliot, Elektra, and Kiani all looking at her. Then she gave a little nod and walked over to their table. Hey, she said, pulling up a chair. She was keeping her voice low, as if she didn't necessarily want Jax and the others to hear. I'm Lara. Uh, back there is my co-pilot, Wade. Elliot, Kiani, and Alextra, Elliot said, pointing at himself and then his two companions with his spoon before going back to scraping the last of the gravy off the sides of the container. Corin told me who you were, Lara said. What else did Corin tell you? Alextra asked. Lara looked her over carefully, as if checking aspects of her appearance off a mental checklist. Mostly classified, she said. Then she looked up as Wade approached a food packet in each hand with a steaming drink balanced on top. He hooked a foot around the leg of a chair and maneuvered into position, sitting beside Lara and setting a packet with its still-balanced drink in front of each of them. Hey, he said to the three of them, also keeping his voice low. What's going on? Elliot asked. We're eating, Wade said, pulling the tab off his food packet and releasing a cloud of steam along with the odor of about a dozen spices. We only have a short turnaround between missions, Lara said. When we get the word, we'll be heading out again. No sleep for us. You were one of the shuttles we saw. Elextra guessed. You flew over us with those Commonwealth ships on your tail. We lost the tail, Lara said. We always do, Wade said. Until the day we don't, Lara said with a sharp look. Never happen, Wade said, ignoring her deepening frown. Don't tempt fate. Lara said to him before turning her attention to her own food. Yeah, but he's not wrong. Our little rebellion never would have lasted this long if we weren't twice as good as any Commonwealth pilot. We have to be. This is a remote world, Elextra said. These pilots are not exactly the Commonwealth's best. Elliot frowned at her. Why did she sound so defensive about the Commonwealth all of a sudden? I suppose that's true, Lara said around a large mouthful of food. You don't understand, Elextra said. 
The minute your rebellion becomes more than a nuisance, the minute the Commonwealth chooses to actually respond, you'll be done. You'll all be gone, and it won't even take a full minute. I suppose that's true, Lara said again with a shrug. Hey, Captain, Wade said to her. Tell her to stow the helpless commentary. It's putting me off my digestion. Your digestion will be the least of your problems, Alextra started to say. But Kiani quickly talked over her. Elliot, tell us about your mother, she said. My mother? I wouldn't know where to start. She's been gone so long, and she never told me about any of this, he said. Your mother is a hero of the resistance, Lara said without looking up from her food. You know her? Elliot asked. Lara nodded. But it was Wade who spoke. We're the ones who flew her up to the flagship. Lara shot him a hard glare, and he quickly amended. I mean, I wasn't a co-pilot yet, but I was on the shuttle crew. A valuable member of the shuttle crew, he said, giving Lara a look like he was daring her to contradict him. You man the door, she allowed. That was part of getting her on board without being detected, he said. True enough, Lara said, then leaned forward to speak to the other three. You can't blame Wade for bragging up his part in that mission. The rebellion hasn't matched that success since. We get spies on board from time to time, but they get burned within days. But your mother, she's been up there for years. She's the one who inserted the sub-program into the Commonwealth shuttle nav systems, and she's surely the reason they've never found that sub-program. Surely? You don't know what she's been doing? Elliot asked. It's hard for her to get messages out, Lara said. Karin said that she was caught, Elliot said. Lara and Wade traded a long look. That's what the Epidiaps seem to think, Lara said. You don't think they're right? Alextra asked. I don't like the source of that intel, Lara said, wrinkling her nose. Never trusted that guy. I never liked him either, Wade said. But I don't see what he would gain by lying about Valeria. I'm just saying we should be doing more to find out what's really going on, Lara said. Especially now that they're bound to dig out that sub-program. Why would they do that? Elliot asked. The tanks saw things the shuttles didn't, Kiani guessed. They'll figure that out soon if they haven't already, and they won't stop digging until they find out why. But if they didn't know about that before now, why is my mother in trouble? Elliot asked. She's been undercover far longer than anyone else we've inserted, Wade said. That we know about, Laris said. It's not like the identities of all our intelligence operatives are common knowledge to shuttle pilots. Just then, the door to the room banged open, and Colrin came in, looking flustered and harried. Good, you're all still together. That makes this easier. Are we going to rescue my mother? Elliot asked. Not until we find out why Colden Ward didn't kill your friend there, Jack said from the far side of the room. You aren't going anywhere, Colrin said to Jax, and gave him a cold glare until he slowly hunched back down into his seat to stare solemnly at his food. I can explain, Alextra said calmly. No need, Colrin said. At least, not to me. I'm hoping you'll explain it to your friends on the write-up. Elliot expected her to say that they weren't really friends, but she didn't. And then he finally actually heard the end of that sentence. Write-up where? He asked, hardly daring to hope. Lara, are you and Wade prepared for another flight? Colin asked the pilot. Wade sat forward in his chair, clearly longing to declare his total preparedness. But Lara responded more sedately. We're always ready, sir. Is this another dogfight? 
Nope. Blockade run. Karin said. I need you to get these three up to the flagship. That doesn't sound like a nuisance mission to me, Glextra said. No, it's a little more significant than that. But don't worry, we're not selling you out, he said. I have someone up on that flagship who is anxious to meet you. Elliot wanted to ask if this person was his mother. But having been cut off every other time he tried to mention her, he held his tongue. But the warm glow in Cauldron's eyes answered his question anyway. He was going to see his mother again. He wouldn't be alone anymore. Just the three of them going up? Jax asked. Just the three of them, Cauldron said. I have jobs for the rest of you if you want them. But I'm warning you, it's no easy life here. If you choose to stay, you will work, and work hard. I don't have any place for a wannabe hero who can't be troubled to carry heavy loads when carrying heavy loads is required. Elliot expected another one of Jax's outbursts. And indeed, Jax's silence had a sullen quality to it. But he looked to each of his comrades in turn. And when they all gave him a nod, he said, We'll do it, sir. Just point to what you want carried, and where you want it carried to. Excellent, Corrin said, and sounded genuinely pleased. I'm sorry I don't have another moment to spare you all, but I have a spaceport to vacate. Lara, I'm counting on you to get these three up to the flagship without getting caught. Never been caught yet, Wade said, and Laram shot up a quick glare. You can count on us, sir, she said. Then she and Wade stood up and started gathering the remains of their quick meal. Elliot piled up the empty foil containers and was about to bring them to the trash when he saw Jack standing uncertainly a few meters away. Kiani, he said. Not now, Jax, Kiani said. We might not see each other again, he said. That was true last time too, she said, then turned her back on him and strode out of the room. Elextra gave Jax a cold look, then followed. I'm sure you'll see her again, Elliot said. He didn't know why he said it. He had no way of knowing if it was true, and no reason to want Jax to feel better about anything. But he said it anyway. Then he followed Lyra and Wade out of the room, jogging to keep up as they hustled to the flight deck and their waiting shuttle. He was going up to those Commonwealth ships, the ones that had been mutely oppressing him for so many years. He was going to space. This has been Tales of the Chimacani Trio by Kate McLeod, performed by Oliver Vincent. Tales of the Chimacani Trio is a Radatosker Press production.